Hey, it's Emily Williams, the founder of I Heart My Life and your host of the I Heart My Life show. This is episode 100, and we're celebrating my top favorite episodes from the past 100 with you today. This is a compilation episode filled with tons of inspiration and wisdom from some of my favorite guests. So first and foremost, we have Dr. James Rouse. He was my guest on episode one, and he's someone who is literally the best human I've ever met. And I don't say that lightly. His story is one of the most profound and one of the most touching that I've ever heard. He's so wise, and every single thing that he says, it's literally like a poem. You just want to smile. He makes you have faith in humanity, have faith in yourself. So I know you're going to love hearing his clip. We also have an episode with Brendan Burchard, who my husband James actually interviewed. And Brendan is a number one New York Times bestselling author. He's worked with incredible people like Richard Branson, Oprah Winfrey herself. And he's the person who actually trained my husband James as a certified high performance coach. So it was so special when James got to interview him and have that special time with someone he's looked up to for so many years. Then we have an episode with someone named Philip McKernan. Philip is someone who James and I met a few years ago at the Titan Summit. We saw him speak on stage and just connected with him and really loved his story and journey as well. He's a very powerful speaker, and I was truly touched by my interview with him and touched in a way that I was actually super surprised. He was never supposed to be one of our guests, but he filled in last minute when somebody else canceled on me. And it was such a blessing in disguise because his story is so powerful. And just the way that he looks at the world is so inspiring. So I know that you're going to resonate with him. And he talks a lot about his struggles and what he had to move through the bullying, the judgment, no one actually expected him to be successful. And I really love how raw and real his episode was. Then I have an episode with Lushana Naldi. So this is someone who was one of my previous clients, and she actually went through a period of time and is still in a period of time where she experienced a lot of hair loss. And she actually decided to completely shave her head and become a bald woman. She shares a little bit more about moving through that and the fact that some exciting doors opened once she embraced what was happening in her body. Then I have Michael Roderick. So this is someone who, again, I didn't know super well when I interviewed him, But what I found was that he has all these amazing acronyms and tools and different frameworks that he uses with his clients. In particular, I love what he calls the giver's fix and how some of us are literally obsessed with giving. So we go deeper with that. We also have Dr. Kim Pendleton, who is one of my current clients. She's an amazing, soulful, heartfelt, beautiful woman who helps other women move through any intimacy issues and deal with sex and sexuality and female empowerment. And her episode is super inspiring as well. And Tara Zerker, one of my good friends, who's a Facebook ads expert, I loved her story because she took us on the journey from completely fighting what she knew she was meant for (laughs) in terms of entrepreneurship and even where she was meant to live. And she talks about a transition that happened once she had her first child and realizing that things had to drastically change in her company in order for her to survive and for the company to survive. Then we have an episode with my husband talking all about our move to California. So this was obviously a big deal for us, moving from London to California. So we share some of the behind the scenes of how we made that decision, how we set ourselves up for such a big move. And it's just a fun episode that I definitely wanted to throw in there. And then finally, there's an episode with David Nagel. So David is one of my personal coaches. And when I got to interview him, it was really exciting because I've admired him for about six years and always wanted to work with him closely. And so to have him on the show talking all about money, breaking through money barriers, increasing your wealth, well, it was just a huge honor. So obviously, we're not sharing the entirety of all these episodes. You're just going to hear clips from my top favorites So we'll go ahead and dive in. I hope you're inspired. And if you love what you hear, go back and listen to all of the episodes in full. They are all so great and need to be on repeat in your life. I know I'm going to go back and listen to them as well. So let's dive in. I'm so excited and honored to have Dr. James Rouse with us today. You know, Emily, I hope that people really heard what you just said. So many words of kindness go left unsaid because the smaller part of us says, I haven't got time or that person may not get what I'm trying to convey or I may not have the courage to expose my own vulnerability by acknowledging someone else who I see excellence or I see kindness, I see love, I see possibility. 
he, everyone in this community, Emily, that you have created is a part of a bigger movement and this bigger movement. And, you know, sometimes we say, well, it's about building businesses. And Emily, you're an awesome coach at building businesses. But one of the things I've learned about you of this last year that I think some people may still be kind of getting used to the idea is that one of the things that you and I have talked about, we've done it together when we spent time together, is we've understood the power of what it means to be that exceptional person. If anything, I feel the country, the planet, the universe is rooting for right now is for heroes of the heart who are willing to be exposed for their common humanity and their humility and grace to expose it in ways that are wonderfully unprecedented. Spirit is not held by precedent. And if you're wondering what your great big year is going to look like, look no further in the micro moments of how you can express what you know in your heart to be true and allow that to be the business that you are truly operating out. We are back with the amazing Brendan Bouchard and we've been talking about relationships and Brendan shared a lot of stuff about forming that deep powerful relationship with himself and setting up triggers and following through on intentions to live his best life from his best self. So now we're going to dive, Brendan, into a little bit about the relationships with those outside of you and how you have used those to encourage you, to support you and to help trigger you in a lot of ways and lead you in the direction that you have really felt like you wanted to go. Yeah. Uh... Well, I, I don't know if I've used them as much as they've just kind of inspired me. Um, you know, I, I was blessed to, you know, people always say, Brendan, you're really lucky. And I said, you're right, because I had, I had two great parents. Mm. You know, I, I lucked out with an amazing mom, an amazing dad. And I think that was a foundation for me, for sure. Even though we were, you know, below the poverty line where we lived uh, much of our life, um, they worked super hard. They're incredibly caring family was important um as much as my dad was a disciplinarian because he was you know a marine so he'd done 20 years in the u.s military as, as a marine corps member he was very very hard on us when we were young as we got older he kind of became like buddha like and calm um my mom was just always you've met her she i mean when i, I have this phrase bring the joy don't wait for joy to happen bring it and she's the epitome of that mm -hmm. so I had that, that, that was great. Like the inspirations around you. I also had other people all around me who were terrible and awful and mean. And, and we had, you know, we grew up in a old Irish mining town that was economically depressed. And so there was a ton of alcoholism, a ton of violence where we grew up. Um, but for some reason, my young brain knew that that wasn't where to focus. And I was lucky. I mean, cause I think that happens for a lot of us, even writers, right? You have a, you know, a hundred amazing five-star Amazon reviews, but you notice that one thing that sucks. And I think that happens for everybody. For very early on, I realized that brought a lot of pain and sadness. Mm -hmm. So instead I turned my attention towards people who were positive. And I'm very blessed by that because it's a habit I continue to this day. So I look around for people who are positive. I'm blessed to be married to a woman today who believed in me, who uh, went, had no rightly earthly evidence <laughs> that I would ever make it other than I was just, I was passionate about the topics that I was exploring and, and trying to research. And she became so instrumental in my life and, you know, helped me develop this phrase that really drives so much of my own performance, which is that story. I think, you know, of, of when I was starting out as a writer, mm. I broke and I had to move into her apartment and she was, buying my groceries, cheering me on. But I mean, if, if, if you're a guy in your late 20s and someone has to buy your groceries because you're so broke, that does something to your psyche, you know? And it that, that just terrible feeling that I wasn't enough, that terrible feeling that there was shame there, that I wasn't gonna make it, was taking over my days of productivity. So instead of being a productive person and writing well, I was kind of screwing around and just not getting things done. And there was one night when I moved, had moved into her apartment and we were, you know, really struggling. I was really struggling. She, she was always much more amazing than I was. And as we were, I remember going through that time, she came into my, uh, came into the bedroom that night. I was writing on this little borrowed table for my mom and on my bed was my vision boards 
and my research and all these papers, but also all my invoices and bills as I was going into bankruptcy. And I, she walked by trying not to disturb me as I was writing and she uh, crawled under the, the covers of the bed to go to sleep. And I was typing along, not really motivated that night, just like I hadn't been for a while. And I looked over and I saw, you know, my lady sleeping under my bills. It was just like, you know, nobody wants that. No. You know, but as you said earlier about awareness being difficult, um, nobody wants to see their family suffer because of their own inaction. Right. And their own inadequacy. And so I had to deal with that. And seeing her, and it just, it snapped something inside in a very good way, ultimately. And it made me want to do better. And I never was more productive than I was in those next 18 months. Because having seen where it brought us, it was, you know, it wasn't okay. It was another critical incident in my life. It was just like, this is not what I wanted for my life, my girl, my love, our relationship. And so I just, I mean, the next 18 months, I mean, wrote a book, published a book, um, went from bankrupt to multimillionaire in 18 months. I mean, I just, it was 24 seven total focus, nothing else in my life until I turned it around. I mean, I learned every new skill I had to learn to master my medium. I, I learned online marketing. I learned video. I learned copywriting. I learned email marketing. I learned blogging. I learned how to do sales letters. I learned how to do sales videos. I learned how to build online courses. I mean, I did every, I'm literally self-taught in 18 months, just hardcore work because I didn't want that outcome anymore. Hmm. And that that's something I always tell people to use that as an intention cue if you have someone in your life. I mean, every day I walk into my office, there's another intention cue that says, who needs you? on your A game today. Somebody needs you on your A game today. Hmm. And when you really connect with that, right, you and I can just be doing this thing, we're having this interview, or right before I started this interview, I said, okay, who needs me on my A game today? And it wasn't just yourself or, or myself or my brand, it was, you know what, somebody's probably watching this who like had those same struggles somewhere I had, maybe they're sad. Or maybe they don't have any intention cues, or maybe they've got off their personal development game, or maybe someone in their life is financially struggling. I need to show up energetically today, hopefully in a good place, despite the last crazy three months that I've had on the road, traveling, serving, delivering. It's like, okay, it's not about me. Who needs me today? So that fires me up and that gets me motivated. I think the best relationship you can ever have in your entire life with other people is one rooted in service. Today's guest is Philip McKernan. So I'm curious to know, for me, I always had this feeling that I was meant for something big. I went through a quarter life crisis, was depressed for many years. And so there was some amount of time where I, I didn't know what that was, but there was still that belief. Even when people were telling you that you weren't going to amount to anything, did you feel that that wasn't true? Uh. I think I'd heard it for so long, for so many years, I actually began to believe it was true, mm. fundamentally, that I was I was broken. There was something fundamentally wrong with me and I was different. Um, and I remember my biggest break, and this is something I've never shared publicly. Uh, I know I'm sharing it today, but let's see what happens. Um, but I remember getting the biggest break in my life at that time. I was about 15 and I went to a very dominant rugby school, like a like a sports school. And sports was everything. If you were good at sports, it didn't matter how you were in academics, you got away with everything. And I remember being picked for the junior cup team, which would have been was huge. I was in fourth year, as we would say in uh, in, in in Europe. I'm not sure what that equates to in the U.S. schooling system, but I was in fourth year, and I remember getting selected for this uh, for this team. And my brothers had never been selected for this team. This was a big deal. And as three brothers, we were quite competitive. I was being the youngest, and um, not just did I did I what did I hear about this? But the whole school told me about it. So 650 people saw my name on the board and we broke up for, I think it was Easter break. And this was like, despite all of my pain, all of my suffering to some extent, I was thinking, holy shit, there's, 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 there's life here. This is my break. I can't believe someone sees something in me that I don't see in myself. And one of the teachers who was a captain or manager of the team, he didn't like me because he thought I was lazy, but I wasn't. As I said earlier on, I was dyslexic. I struggled, but I wasn't lazy. He removed my name during the break. So when I came back to school, I'll never forget going to that notice board. I'll, I'll never forget that. Um, the humiliation, staggering. 
650 people seeing your name removed from the board. No explanation, no one pulling me aside, no one saying to me, you know what, this is the, you're just not good enough, you're not sporty enough, you're not strong enough, you're not, no explanation, just my name up in front of everybody, my name removed without any explanation. And I, I'm sharing that because, you know, when you get so many kicks in the teeth, it, you almost start to feel you're broken. At the same time, there was something in me, and I don't know if it was inspired by others, but there was something in me that believed that I was destined for something different. I didn't know if it was something big or small or whatever. I think I thought it was big. So the bigger I made it, the more insignificant I felt because I felt like it was the top of Mount Everest and I was at the bottom, but I wasn't even dressed for climbing. I was in, I was in my, my Speedos and I had no boots and I had no, like you know, climbing. No, yeah, I had no climbing picks, I had nothing. So I felt so deeply inadequate as I considered something big. I think what I did was I softened and I grew, gained some compassion from somewhere and realized that maybe it's not something big, but it's just something different. And that allowed me to put one foot in front of the next, in front of the next, in front of the next. So what did that look like? When did you start putting one foot in front of the next? Was it after the best man speech? Yeah, it was definitely after school because I felt school was a prison to me. Like school was being incarcerated in a maximum security prison without having any breath. And it was basically, yeah, I think I think it was after that. It was. That was the first time I was recognized publicly for me, not publicly because of something I could do or a magic trick. It was because of my of because of who I was. And that began this 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 journey, albeit slow, one could argue. But now I look back, it wasn't slow at all. Um, I needed to be that organic. And it did allow me to start. And one thing no, almost no one knows about me is that I coached for years in Ireland in a pub, believe it or not, coaching people one-on-one -on -one because I couldn't afford a meeting space. And I'd meet upstairs in this little pub and we didn't have any alcohol. And we'd meet at this little round table, which is partly in this hallway. And it was kind of noisy. And I would meet you. I'd meet a person for one hour every week for six weeks. And they could pay me a contribution that we would give to charity. And I did this for years for free, basically, oh, sorry, it wasn't free. They pay something, we give it to charity, but I didn't get paid for it. So I took the whole money and the whole thing off the table. So there was no kind of like any, um, just I didn't want to complicate it with money. I wanted to just see what this would be like. So I did that for years. So I was doing stuff along the way. The one thing that I'm very good at doing, um, sometimes I'm slow, but sometimes, you know, I do execute very fast, is taking action. And I have a quote, in the absence of clarity, take action. Because sometimes when we're paralyzing ourselves with the uncertainties of A or B, sometimes you just pick one and just see what happens or choose to not pick either, which is also action in its own right. So the action on the small things have really led me to a, a large degree of success in terms of what I do now. Oh, I love that. Marie Forleo has an amazing quote that's similar. She says, clarity comes from engagement, not from thinking about it. I have the incredible Luciana Naldi here with me today. So talk to us a little bit about the experience of losing your hair. Okay. And Absolutely. how that even um, came to be. Because when you emailed me, you know, I had seen pictures online. I've been following you, but I didn't know the story. And it's it's really fascinating and powerful and, and amazing. Okay, absolutely. Um, well, I when I was in college, I was about 19 or 20, I started losing my hair like right here in the middle. Mm. But it didn't fall out anywhere else. And I, I remember being like, what is this? <laughs> like, is this a joke? This is not even funny. So um, it's, I went to the doctor. She's like, oh, yeah, you have alopecia. And I was like, awesome. What is that? Like, yeah. give me something else. And so um, she said, it's just unexplainable hair loss. There's no other physical symptoms. There's nothing wrong with you. For some people, they lose all of their hair. Some people lose little patches. It just is totally personal. Okay. I'm like, okay, well, what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> she goes, and she gave me some like topical Rogaine and it literally grew back. And I never had any other issues um, until after the babies were born. And then at that time, maybe like at the same time I was going through your course towards the end of it, it started falling out again. And I thought, it's not that big of a deal. Okay. But it got to the point where I couldn't hide it. Yeah. So I started really seeking like answers and solutions and treatments, which none of them are reliable. None of them are good. Anyway, uh, it got to the point I couldn't hide it and I had to make a choice. And up to that point, I'd really looked and for answers and ideas outside of myself. And I thought, you know, there's, there's really one thing I haven't addressed, which is 
what happens if I decide I'm going to shave it? What happens if I decide I'm going to deal with this in a way that's different than what everyone expects me to do? Because everyone was bringing me doctors and natural, you know, natural things and saying, oh, you know, you can do this, you can fix it. And I thought, what if that's not what needs fixing? Mm. What if that's not what I'm meant to learn from this yeah. or meant to understand, you know? And so I, I remember going into the bathroom and I had cut it to the point with one of my very close friends of just really low. It, it was like really super short at that point. And I had cut it and I thought, you know what, right now I have the choice of how I can deal with this and how I want the kids to see me deal with it. And they were actually in there with me and I thought, I'm just going to shave it. I'm just going to shave it. And we're going to see what happens. And my kids are watching me shave it and I, I do it and it falls away. And as, as my hair fell away, it was literally like I stepped out of a box that I didn't know I'd been living in. Like the things that fell away were the things that weren't me anymore. The, the things that people had said to me when I was young about, you know, like the things that they didn't like about how you looked and the, the mean girl voice of being a 15 year old, like judging yourself for how you look and what you need to look like to be beautiful. She wasn't there anymore. And the voice that came, there was two. And it was the wise woman voice in me, who is the experienced woman, the one who's been through, you know, all these different things and thought, no, this is your face. This is the face that is, is awesome, has, you know, cried, has kissed boo-boos, has supported people this is the face we're going to put into the world and we're going to do it confidently. And that was the wise woman. And then there was the warrior woman who was like, not only are you going to do it, but you're going to rock it. And you are going to make sure that other people know young and old that you can do anything and you can go anywhere and be anyone. And it, and this is not what matters. And it was a really just profound moment for me because the, I didn't believe the things that I did before anymore. And my kids are looking at me and it was, they're just like, wow, you know, mom, it's, it's gone. And I was like, I know, right. All right, let's go on with the day. Like we're going to rock this and we're going to do it. And, you know, of course there's been moments. I mean, I've had just a huge variety of experiences and conversations as a result of it. Um, but I've never once since I've done it been sorry. I've never wow. once not felt like it wasn't the right thing and the true thing to do for me. And so, yeah, that was, that's the biggest part of it. Wow. There are no words. I mean, that's, I can feel your emotion. I have my own emotions about this. It's just something that so many of us need to hear for so many different reasons. One in which I love that this was like an intuition thing. You know, there was nothing out there that said, go and shave your head or whatever. You know, this was your, you were being called to do this and you were being guided to do it. And then I love the warrior woman and the wise woman. And I think that we can tap into those people, whoever it is for us. You know, I often look at, <laughs> tap into my older self and ask her what she would do. And it's amazing how quickly the answer comes. And it's just another reminder that we have what we need inside of ourselves. And and so many people forget that so many people are looking towards the outs to the outside source. And I know you have spoken about this as well. And we're going to get into it in a second. Um, we often look at that for that external thing. But it's so it's there within all along. Yeah, it's, it, it's scary to look at it. I think for most people, yeah, I do. And I can't tell you how many women, old women, young women will come up to me and be like, you are so brave. And I think it's so interesting what we consider brave because, you know, I'm not saving people from burning buildings. I'm not like, you know, going to other countries and helping, you know, doing stuff that I consider like courageous and brave. Yeah. All I did was say, I, I'd not, I don't have to look like what you think I should look like. And I'm happy with who I am and how I look now. Like that's literally all I said. I, I am just unapologetically myself in a way that I haven't been before. And I think in doing that, it gives people permission to be the same. It, it literally says, stop hiding. Like whatever wig you're wearing, take it off. Like mm. just be who you are, you know? Yeah. And, and that's, I like the option that I can be whoever I want, whenever I want, but I always had that. And I didn't believe that I had it. So it was, again, like you said, the it's all inner. It's yeah. all something that you have to look inside and, and ask yourself and actually listen, listen to the answers. 
I love how you said, whatever wig you're wearing, take it off. And that's obviously metaphorical and speaks to us <laughs> on so many different levels. Um, that's so powerful. So tell us, since you've taken the wig off, so to speak, how has your life transformed? Oh, my gosh. So there, there's just so many ways to count. First yeah. of all, I feel like I, I feel like I'm able to have conversations on a more real level with people. Like they're, the people that approach me, it's been an incredible human filter. People approach me for like one of two reasons. They are genuine and they want to know and they want to have conversations about the things that have changed their lives, which, you know, like you meet somebody for 30 seconds and they're telling you about the things that have impacted them, which connects yeah. you to more people on a really personal human level, which I love. Um, it's enabled me to have conversations with my children about body image and beauty and expectations for women and men at a much earlier age. Um, one of my children had a really hard time with this. Mm -hmm. She did not want me to walk around at school like this because I didn't look like the other moms. And that led to me pulling up all these pictures of bald women in modeling and showing her. And I said, you know, look at these women. What about them? And she's like, wow, they're, they're beautiful and they're amazing. And I said, that's right. I said, do you think that mom needs to change so that the world accepts her? And she said, no, I said, that's not our work. Our job is to change the, the way the world views other people. It's to change It's to be who we are all the time. And so once that they kind of understood that it was okay. And like, I, I walk around anywhere now. I mean, sometimes with her, sometimes without, but, um, that's been a really awesome benefit is just being able to have those kind of conversations. Um, I have definitely been more bold and more vocal in what I believe and how I present the message. I have spoken to both adults and young girls and young kids, and I will often go on with the wig on yeah. and start. And then halfway through, I'll take it off and share the story. And I've had women come up to me and be like, you know, I saw you and I thought, oh my God, who is this woman? She looks amazing. She's going to talk to us. And I don't have anything in common with her. And you know, her life is perfect. And then you take off the wig and it like humanizes me. Honestly, yeah. it, it, people are like, you're just like me. And I said, we're all just like each other. Like, that's what you have to see. Like what you see in somebody is what you choose to see in them. You know, you're, you're choosing to see what you're insecure about sometimes or what you're scared of. And if you would just remove those and remove the filters and the lenses and see each other for who we are and have like a real conversation with somebody, you'd be amazed at how we are all connected on some level. So beautiful. And then Dove called. Yeah. And then Dove called. <laughs> so tell us about that. So, That's a huge thing. Yes. Yeah, so Dove was doing a campaign where they wanted to talk about, uh, they wanted examples of women who had shifted their ideas of beauty. And so I was fortunate because mine had shifted from, you know, thinking I needed to look one way as an athlete to, after having babies to then this hair thing. And so I shared it with them and they were like, wow, that's really amazing. Okay. And so we talked over the course of about four or five months and they said, we'd love for you to be one of the women that we feature. And we, you know, we want to send a photographer and we want to put you in there. And so they came and we did some like a little video in the house with the kids and different things. And then they said, just tell us, tell us what you think the definition of real beauty is. And that was like the perfect timing for me because I was completely through any doubt or any discomfort with it. The moment that I started talking about it, yeah. and I think I shared that video with you, it was the strongest and the happiest that I'd ever been. And I just had a hilarious experience where I'd been approached in a grocery store by an old man who thought I was a man. And so that was a hilarious, I know that that was a hilarious experience, but the, the importance of that experience was that had that happened to me at a different time in my life, um, it would have crushed me. It would have really made me do things to change my appearance yeah. so that others found me pleasing. And in that moment that didn't happen, that I, I felt, just completely at peace and happy with being able to have a conversation with this person who, you know, thought I was a man, but I actually am not. <laughs> 
And then being able to go the next day and, you know, be a part of something that honors beautiful women and, and wow. not for the reasons that we think, but for the reasons that really exist and who we are. So mm. yeah, it's an amazing experience. Wow. So incredible to hear you share this. And it's obvious that it's like, the only word that comes to mind for me, well, there are many words, but the main one is freedom. It seems like you're so free now, free to be yourself, free to share this message, and obviously powerful in what it is that you know that you're called to share with the world and empowered to do it. I'm here with Michael Roderick. So before the break, we were talking all about this DIME framework, which really helps people like you start to build those amazing connections, create that network, and really ask for what it is that you want and do it in a way that creates trust and creates deeper relationships. One of the other things that Michael is really amazing at talking about is this thing that he calls the giver's fix. So I want to talk about that and the relationship between giving and debt. So Michael, I'd love to hear your thoughts on both. Sure. So the giver's fix uh, has to do with the fact that anytime we give, it releases a chemical in our bodies. So some refer to it as oxytocin, some refer to it as dopamine. Whatever the, whatever the chemical is that is happening, anytime we give, we get a good feeling. We actually get a rush as a result of that giving. So what happens for a lot of people is they actually get hooked on giving. So every single time that they give, they get that rush. But if they ask, there is no chemical reaction associated with asking. So what tends to happen is just like an addict, we are like searching for our next fix. We just give and give and give and help people. And we're just like, oh, my God, I feel so great. I feel so wonderful. But then we're never letting people know what it is that we actually need. And once that happens, we get into this place of we're so everybody loves us and we're connection rich and in many cases cash poor because we're solving everybody else's problems. We're doing all these great things, but we're never actually doing anything for ourselves and the people around us start to make assumptions. So one assumption that somebody will make if you're always a giver, if like every single time you're talking to somebody, you're always giving they start to assume that you have no needs because how could you possibly be any in any state of need or, or suffering if you're just always giving, if you're always, always helping and always supporting. And then the other side in terms of how we're perceived ties into this idea of the relationship between giving and debt. So every single person has what I like to refer to as a reciprocity impulse. And what that means is we have a desire to give back when we receive something. But certain people have a different timeline on that reciprocity impulse. So there are some people, if I give to you, you'll instantly want to give something back to me right away. And then there are other people, if you give to them, you may not hear from them for three or four weeks, but when they do come back to you, or even a year in some cases, but when they do come back to you, they may give you something ridiculous. And in other cases, there are people who they never even think about giving anything back as, as a result of that. So the thing is, if you have somebody who has a very strong reciprocity impulse and you're always giving, here's what starts to happen. So let's say you meet someone, you start to make a connection, you make an introduction. Following week, you send them, uh, you, you send them to an event following week, you send them some like good article or some good material. They keep asking you, what can I help you with? And you're just like, no, it's totally fine. I'm a giver. It's all good. In their mind, because they have such a strong reciprocity impulse, that's like credit card debt. They actually start to think about, oh my God, every single time I talk to Emily, I'm getting something and how will I ever be able to pay this back? So what happens is some of these people, they actually start to avoid you because they feel like they have this massive credit card debt with you and they feel like they could never give back in any way. So the only way that we're able to uh, help those people when they have that debt feeling is to basically ask them for the things that we need. Let them know 
that we need something, that way they have that relief of, oh my God, okay, I've finally been able to give something back and we can keep the relationship as opposed to having them eventually start to avoid us in much the same way that people will avoid phone calls when they have uh, large amounts of credit card debt. Wow, that's so fascinating. How did you come to realize this and really come up with all these frameworks? So a lot of it came from my own personal experience. I was uh, very much uh, a giver. Uh, you know, I still am in many in in many ways, but I was very much the connection rich, cash poor type. Where it was like I was always helping, solving other problems, helping people do these massive deals and all these different types of things. And I had um, basically a moment in my life, uh, I have an 18-month-old daughter, and when my daughter was born, she was born not breathing. So we had five weeks in the NICU, and I was working for myself. My wife had to leave, you know, leave her job. So we, we had uh, the doula set up a GoFundMe, and there were people donating to us and just, like, helping us out. It was the first time in my – really that I had this, like, moment of, like – receiving. Um, so I eventually started to really study this once I got past all of all of those experiences. And I said, I feel like there's tons of people who struggle with this. I feel like there are tons of people who have this issue. Um, so what can I do to help them understand it? And what I realized was that in most relationship building information, uh, there are formulas where basically people are like, say it this way or do it this way. And the problem with the formula is that if you don't follow the formula to the T, you suddenly think that you're wrong. You suddenly think that you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing in the relationship building side of things. So what I realized was that nobody was actually creating frameworks, just different ways to think about it so that you could execute on these things in your own way. So through my own experiences of having been, you know, done a ton of giving and having to, you know, uh, figure out how to receive and how do I create that balance personally, I started to see it in other people and it made it so easy for me to notice it in my clients where it was just like they would say, they would talk about why they were struggling and they would have this massive group of people around them who could help them and I would just be like, so why haven't you asked any of these people for support or for help? And because I've been through it, I could see where those challenges were, and I would give them these frameworks to help them solve those problems. And don't you find that when it comes to asking for that support, sometimes there's a lot of shame around that, like I shouldn't need this support, I should be able to stand on my own two feet, I don't want anyone to know that I'm in this place. Yep. Yeah, I think that a lot of people do struggle with that. I think the the way that I help uh, a lot of my clients specifically with that is I talk about the oxytocin side of things. So I basically say, if you're getting a rush every single time that you give to other people, if you're helping other people and you're getting that good feeling, but you never let the people in your life know what it is that you need, you're actually robbing them of that good feeling. You're robbing them of the opportunity to feel helpful. You're robbing them of that oxytocin, that dopamine, all of those types of things. So by just constantly giving and never letting your network know what you need, you're actually being more selfish because you're just taking all that good stuff and you're not giving anybody else the experience that you get to have when you're helping and supporting others. And that's the perfect way to phrase it for people who want to create these beautiful relationships and want other people to feel loved. If they're hurting and being selfish, they don't want to hear that. Exactly. Dr. Kimberly Pendleton. Thank you for articulating that so eloquently. And, and I agree. I want everyone listening to really understand this is not about bashing any religions, but I think it's exactly what you described here. We're taught to look for guidance outside of ourselves, and we forget that the universe, God, spirit is working through us, through our own intuition, through our own belief system. And what comes up for us that's literally, you know, coming in the form of a dream or just a whisper or that feeling, whether it's moving to another country, pursuing a certain career path, or, you know, being in or out of a relationship, all of that can come through us. And I don't think that we are actually taught, at least not well, to trust ourselves and trust our intuition growing up, um, regardless of whether that pertains to sex or anything else. You're so right. And it's one of the biggest things that I think 
we, anyone actually who works with women, but especially, you know, both of us and our businesses have to like really focus on is helping that voice get louder and louder, you know, so that it really is able to be heard amongst all of the noise and all the advice and all the rules that especially women are taught to play. Um, and men too, actually, there are just so many layers to what it feels like you're expected to do. And the truth is like that inner wisdom is trying to guide you to something extraordinary. And it might not look like what everybody else is doing. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's so important that we teach trust to younger women. We also teach um, what it means to to be intimate with someone and not shame ourselves for wanting to be intimate. And I believe, of course, it's important to choose wisely in terms of who you sleep with and not just be, you know, throwing yourself around or anything, but, and of course to be safe. But at the same time, when you're taught for your entire teenage, um, that tan, that span of that, that teenage period to not, engage in any of that behavior and that there's something wrong with it when you actually do get into a marriage or into a long-term relationship. And that's meant to be a part of the experience. It's very difficult to navigate. And I know for me, I had the same experience where I didn't know how to experience sex without it being made to be dirty because for so many years, it was like this thing that you not only didn't talk about, but you definitely didn't engage in. And then to make the flip and think about it in an entirely different way, that was, that was just so confusing. Did you have the same experience? Absolutely. And I hear it from so many women, even women who didn't grow up in a really particularly strict household we're surrounded by that messaging in our culture anyway. And so, you know, what I like to say is like, even if you don't really buy into it, it's hard to tell how much has already bought its way into you. This sense that, you know, be sexy, but don't have sex, be appealing, but like, don't talk about it. And you're definitely not supposed to be doing this, but you know, it's just, it's so confusing. And so, I experienced that where it was like, well, suddenly this flip is meant to be switched. I have no idea how to do that. No one's ever talked to me about my own pleasure or how that could even factor into what we're doing here. And even my clients who are happily married, you know, they didn't pick the wrong person, but they still don't just suddenly know how to unleash their like inner sex goddess after years and years of being told like, this is dangerous and this makes you dirty and really cementing in that messaging that you lose your value if you engage in this, let alone think about your pleasure. That is so hardwired and it takes some real, you know, deconditioning um, and a community usually to help you think it through in order to be able to replace that with some much more empowering patterns. Luckily, they're out there. It's just, it's so much work. We could save everyone a lot of time if we just started teaching younger women this earlier. Yeah, this is so great. Thank you for bringing this to the table. And I definitely want to ask you a little bit more about how you help people to create new patterns and new ways of thinking. But I'm curious for you, when you were in that marriage and you realized, or or let me ask a different question, when was it that you realized, hey, I'm married to the wrong person? Yeah, this is actually such an unexpected story. Um, I don't even know if my ex-husband truly knows this. Maybe he'll listen to this and have more insight about what happened. But, you know, I was in in and out of the hospital, going to different doctors, trying to figure out what these kind of like shooting pains were in my system. And at the same time, I, you know, I had no idea about the world of coaching really. Um, and at the same time, I sort of stumbled upon a woman who works with people around eating and emotional eating and weight loss. And I wasn't really, oh, and she specialized in weight loss for brides. And I was not a bride and not trying to lose weight. But the way that she talked about engaging with your body was all about like asking 
your weight in a way and asking your desire to maybe emotionally eat, like what is really going on here? And it was all about listening to your body and viewing everything as like a sign that it's trying to tell you something. It's trying to say something is wrong here. And I somehow recognized that I needed to be doing this about the pain and I needed to be treating it as data that was trying to tell me something was wrong. And of course I thought the something that might be wrong was that like, you know, maybe I had cervical cancer or something. I was looking for like a concrete issue. And then what ended up happening when I started listening more and more to my body is that I realized like, Oh, it's this box I've put myself in. And it wasn't just the relationship, but that was a big part of it. It was like, I am trying to squeeze myself into this tiny little life and I just don't fit. And my body is trying to tell me like, get out of here. And it was so hard to realize that. And then of course it got so much easier once I embraced it and broke free. And I, really worried. Like, I don't, am I going to regret this? I exploded my whole life and it's been amazing. You know, I really have only felt more and more free as more time has gone on. And slowly, so many of the, especially women that were in my life at that time who were totally blindsided by this, you know, why is Kim just like leaving right now? Um, have really, said they've been following me. They've come to really appreciate my work. And some have even signed up for Uncover because they've realized that like we were all swimming in that same sea and all of us needed um, guidance. So that's been really gratifying. I didn't really expect that, but I, I felt like the universe was giving it to me as like a cheering on that like you're on the right path. Like people need this. And when you made the decision and you figured out that your body was trying to give you the message of get out, essentially, how quickly did you have that conversation with your husband? Uh, it didn't go great. You know, I look back and think like there are so many things I would do differently now. I really blamed him and I like didn't know how to articulate it this way. And I, you know, I thought maybe it was about finding someone else. And I, you know, I'm just not happy. Like I got to get out of here. Sometimes I think of it as the equivalent to setting the entire house on fire when I to jump <laughs> out the window and I could have just like walked out the door, like the door was unlocked. And it's so funny. I mean, and I'm, and I can look back and be like, you were 23. You didn't know really what you were doing. You didn't have a decade of tools yet. Um, but, but there is a sadness there where I think that kind of back to what we were saying about listening to that inner voice. Like if I, if I had trusted her a little more, it would have still been painful. Tara Zerker. I agree completely. And so, you know, at some point you, you do have a lot of clients, you're doing the SEO services, the social media, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so what, you know, we've already talked about a bit about giving yourself permission. What did it take for you to give yourself permission to pivot and to just focus Facebook ad, on Facebook ads? Was that a quicker pivot or did that still yeah. take the 18 months? <laughs> took a little bit long. I mean, it was not as long as the 18 months and mostly it was, it was helped along by burnout. And also uh, at the time I became a mother. So around this time in that journey of needing to start narrowing down, uh, I had just become a new mom. I gave myself a three-week maternity leave. And which is, by the way, anyone listening, that is not enough time. <laughs> uh, you, you are a strong woman. Yes, you absolutely are. My mindset was I'm stronger than the average bear. <laughs> I can do this. Yeah has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with that little baby who needs to eat every couple of hours. I just had no clue. So I took a three-week maternity leave. And one of the most powerful things happened in my business, I'm so grateful to this day for this really hard experience. I came back three weeks after this very short maternity leave. Leave. I had uh, uh, you know, a baby that had been in the NICU 
for one week of that. So I had this precious little baby at home. I had no clue. She was a preemie baby. She needed to eat all the time. Uh, you know, just different nutritional needs because her stomach was so tiny. And, and I came back to what I thought would be this really expansive, beautiful, everybody just loves you and your new baby. And, and that was not my experience. I came back to a hornet's nest of angry clients, absolutely furious clients. In that three weeks I was gone, almost everything broke. Now, what I did wrong was I had never, I had never really done longer than a couple of days of vacation. And so my team was trying their best, bless their hearts, but literally (laughs) they were like, we don't know. We have to wait till Tara comes back. So I come back to just a swarm of angry clients. And what happened was I started getting text messages. Hey, Tara, I know you're on maternity leave. I hate to, or I know you're, you know, just coming back from maternity. I hate to add this to your plate, but we have X, Y, and Z challenge, X, Y, and Z emergency, uh, you know, all this stuff. Like for some reason, everybody was mad about something. And I was in a situation where I've never been like this before. Uh, I had to tell all of them, I will fix your problem, but this could take me three to six weeks. And, you know, imagine a client business where you feel like people are just constantly demanding things of you. And here I am telling them, you know, you're going to need to give me three to six weeks. And this beautiful thing happened. I, I honestly thought we were losing the business. Everyone was so angry. And what actually happened was they said, okay, I'm really frustrated, but thank you for responding. And that sounds fine. And so in that moment, I realized, oh, this is, this is just, this is just relationships. Like all I'm doing is this is all relationships. Like it's okay for a relationship to go off the, you know, like to go off track a little bit, as long as you tell people what's going on. And so everyone was really upset and yet I didn't lose any one of those clients. And I thought I was losing all of them. For the first time in my business, I actually exhaled. You know, here I had been holding all of this on my shoulders and I was like, oh, I get it. We can go through a really hard time. We can go through a really, you know, bad revenue month. We can go through all of these really tough obstacles. And you know what? This is business. You will go through those things and you can get through it. And I just, ever since that moment, I was so wound up. I mean, I've never been more stressed out in my whole life. And then when I didn't lose any of those clients, and even if I had, I was like, oh, okay, I get it. What I built was stronger than what I thought. It was also weaker than what I thought because you know, I left for those three weeks and everything fell apart. Well, for my next maternity leave, I took four months and I came back to the most beautiful business. My team had actually grown it while I was away. So what I did differently was I learned that you have to kind of do these test runs. So I do two days away and a week away and 14 days away. We did so many test runs. And the first few times I did these test runs, well, there were problems. There were like little things that would break. We just say, okay, team, let's make a process for this so this doesn't happen. I do another test run. We did so many test runs that pretty soon they were running the thing just fine without me. In fact, probably better <laughs> than waiting around. I asked James to jump on this episode with me just to share a behind the scenes look at what we've been experiencing over the past few months. So let's just take people back. When we decided that we wanted to move to the US, it was probably about a year or two ago when we realized that flying back and forth eight times in the span of a year was not the best decision. It was not good for our health. It was not good for the company. And so we started to really have a serious conversation around the timing of the move. And yet, it never seemed to be the perfect time. We had launches, we had challenges, we had things changing in the business, we were planning our first event. So can you tell people a little bit more about how kind of difficult that was to, that decision was and how we were able to finally decide on, on a date and why? It's so interesting because it, there's so many things in life that we could all put down to, oh, I'll wait for the perfect time, right? And nothing in life changes unless you change or, you know, you implement some change to come in, right? And I think that's what we learned that, you know, we're doing something massive and it's ever growing and ever expanding and it's not going to wait for a perfect time for us to do anything, especially something as big as um, moving countries, right? And so it was, it was kind of, 
challenging because there's, there's an exciting element to it, but then there was a frustration of, but when, how are we going to develop time for this? Because, you know, life is in itself wasn't predictable. Um, and so, you know, not only was there the business to think about and all the logistics there, which I guess we'll get into how, how complicated like, you know, moving abroad is, um, but also emotionally for me, there was, I've never lived in another country before. And so there were the family and friends that I loved that, that would be, you know, that, that we'd be leaving. Um, and then simply the choice of both of us, you know, living what would be in a totally new place and not really knowing what to expect. So there's, there's a balance of excitement and kind of um, not really being able to be prepared. Yeah, totally. And I remember what tends to happen with us is like, we just wake up one day and we're like, let's just book the tickets. Like we can't, we can't put this off any longer. Let's just pick a date. And so we decided on, uh, well, we first thought we were going to do it in July and then we decided let's move it and do it at the end of August. So we chose August 31st and we picked the date, we booked the tickets and then we realized that we had made a pretty big error in that Lola could not fly with us on a weekend. And it was also <laughs> Labor Day weekend in the US. And so she couldn't fly on the Monday. And so then we had to figure out what do we do with our cat for four days? And how do we be okay with the fact that she's going to be flying on her own for so long when she's literally scared of rain and everything else? So <laughs> that yeah, for, for, those, for those of you that, that don't know, like we are very obsessed with our cat. It's kind of you know, Lola is like our first child. And of course, she is very much part of the family. And it's all very well us being able to shift and move very quickly, which we've always done. But you're right. Like we, I mean, I spent a lot of time researching the best, the best people for moving Lola and again, it all perfect. But you don't, you don't consider the, the, the intricacies of, well, I think what had happened was that the people at the airport that, that take the animals and look after them. They don't work at weekends. Like Emily said, it was Labor Day weekend, but the tickets were already booked. And so now we're like, oh, what do we do? Um, which I'll admit to me was really challenging because, you know, I, I, I worry a lot, you know, about, you know, our little Lola, because she's our little baby, right? But and I will so, say that you're always really good at looking at the bright side because you right. kept saying, well, maybe it's a really good thing because we'll be able to get things settled and then she'll mm. come into an environment that's a little bit calmer and we'll be able to just handle our own bags and all of that jazz. And that made sense. And that actually was, was true. We were able to get some things sorted before she arrived. Well, I mean, that's the trick with this whole year. I mean, what, what I will probably come to for this whole discussion is that, is that when, whenever you, whenever something's going on in your life and you want to, you've got to make some big decisions, um, you have to accept that it, although you can manifest and make anything happen, the route to get there isn't something you've always got control over. Like the, the things that happen along the way aren't predictable. And so the way I always deal with that is to, is to, as soon as I know that I don't have control over a certain out, over a certain route, then I immediately go for, okay, well, what, how, what can we take from this that is going to benefit us? And thinking back now, like if we had a flown on the same day as Lola and had all of that luggage and Lola all at the same time, that would have been pretty stressful. So it, yeah, it, the way to look at it, was that yes, we could get there, we'd get everything set, and then she would uh, she would arrive to a, a semi you know grounded existence when we were when we were settled. <laughs> Today's guest is David Nagel. Wow, and I know your story. I think like the back of my hand at this point because James and I listen to your episodes all the time. But I'm curious to know when did the Tony Robbins event happen? 1993. Okay, so six years before you started the business. Are you able to share that story with the audience? I think it's so powerful. Yeah, so when I went to work for this company, basically what happened was I had written down three goals, three things that I wanted, and I had accomplished two of them. Actually, there were four things, I, but I had accomplished three of them uh, in a year. And that was, well, the first thing was to increase my income to 40,000. So I went to 62 immediately. The next thing was to buy a house um, and, and move into a good neighborhood. So I accomplished that within the first year. The, the, the next thing after that was I wanted my own fishing boat because I grew up fishing when I was a kid and I wanted, a, I wanted a decent fishing boat. Like that was a dream. I thought maybe in 20 years, I might be able to get something like that. I had that with like a year, a year, year and a half, something like that. So I had those things and 
I was still studying relentlessly. And I, I remember there was this one night I came home and I didn't know where to get information. I didn't know what direction. I didn't know that there was a self-improvement business development section at the bookstore or in a library. I didn't know that. I stumbled across it. But I came home one night and Tony Robbins was doing his infomercials with Fran Tarkenton, the personal power uh, infomercials, when he was first starting out with those. And it took me three nights to convince myself to spend the 160 bucks and buy them, but I did. And I started listening to those religiously. And it was basically like turn your life around in 30 days type of a cassette program. You set goals and and all that. And in there was a $100 coupon to go to one of his live events. And the live event cost $3,600 and it was in Ohio in February. And... Mm -hmm. I remember, I remember thinking to myself, I really want to go to this, but I only have thirty six hundred bucks. And I was, and I was talking about this with my wife, and she's like, "Well, go." She's like, it, "You know, if you really want to go, go." She's like, "You just got to come up with thirty six hundred dollars." And I'm having this conversation with her in our kitchen, and I'm looking, I'm having a drinking a cup of coffee, and I'm looking out the kitchen window, and I'm staring at my boat, and all of a sudden it dawns on me: there's my thirty six hundred dollars. I just paid this boat off. If I if I sell the boat, I will I will have the money to go. And I'm like, no, you <laughs> like really? That's like that's my opportunity right there. I gotta I gotta sell this boat that I just worked really hard to get. And I and I and I thought to myself, you know what? If I ever figure out what I'm doing, I'll be able to buy any boat that I want. So I sold it that week and I bought the tickets to go. And that's how I ended up uh, uh, going to a Tony Rob- my first Tony Robbins event, going to my first event, period. I love that story. And one of the reasons why is because you often talk about how in order to move forward or, or in order to gain something, sometimes we have to lose something or give something up. So can you talk a little bit about that shift that you had to make and that you see your clients often making? Because I know one of the things that you are known for is helping people turn their yearly salary into their their monthly income. So can you talk a little bit about making that shift? Yeah. So, the, you know, as I as I started to study, I started to like between reading and, and coaching with people, I started to learn all of these really cool ideas that that helped me make sense out of what happened to me, how I became uh, how I started to become successful. And basically, what my mentor told me was that I became an unconscious competent. Uh, I was doing things the right way, but I didn't know what I was doing. And he said to me, you know, the danger of that is that if something changes external of yourself, you don't know what to change in order to adapt to that change. So very often, unconscious competents are winning one day, but losing the next when something changes. So one of the things that I learned was the law of sacrifice which basically means letting go of something of a lower nature in life in order to gain something of a higher nature. And I recognize that's what I did with the boat. I was willing to let go of something of a lower nature. Like I could have kept the boat. I could have enjoyed the boat, but that, but, but that would have not gotten me any further in life. It would have brought me pleasure, but it wouldn't have gotten me any further in life. So it became an asset at that point. And I was willing to let that go to gain more knowledge to pay for the knowledge that I needed that would allow me to go further in life. And that, you know, when I started my business, uh, I was, I came out of the gate in the, in the, in my business, earning the equivalent of about $50,000 a year. And I realized that uh, I wanted to do what I was being taught, which was to turn your annual income into a monthly income. So I decided that I was going to give this a shot and I worked at it for three months. And the first two months I failed miserably at it. And my mentor said to me, he said, David, it's easier to make $50,000 a month than it is to make $50,000 a year. And I thought he was just screwing around with me because he used to do that all the time. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, it's easier for you. You know, not, it's not easier for me. It's easier for you. (laughs) And so I said that to him the first month. And then the second month, I talked to him at the end of the month. He said, how did you do? And I'm like, I still didn't do it. Like, I don't know. I'm missing something. He said, I told you it's easier to make $50,000 a month than it is to make $50,000 a year. Now, my mentor was an interesting guy because 
he never really told you how to do anything. What he forced you to do was to learn how to think, because that's the thing that you could take with you forever. If you really understand how to think successfully, you that's yours for, for life. If I always tell you what to do, you're not learning how to think. Then everybody needs to tell you what to do in order for you to do something. So I thought, okay, he's telling me it's easier. And I was like, oh, he literally means it's easier. What am I doing that's not easy about that? I'm making this hard. And I realized at that moment, this value that I had clung to that worked for me so well for several years um, of hard work was now getting in my way of actually in, of actually doing this seemingly magical thing of turning your annual income into a monthly income. And I thought, okay, so if I'm going to make this easy, what would be the easiest way based on what my business is for me to do this? And I thought, well, if I charged $50,000 for one client, I could do it immediately. But I didn't really believe that I could do that yet. So I readjusted the math and I realized when I did that, that the math that I had had chosen, like there must have been a blind spot there because there's no way that the numbers ever would have worked. I I mean, I would have had to work myself to death to ever make the numbers and enough numbers in a month in order to get to 50,000. It just, based on the resources that I had at the time, it was not possible. So I, I increased my price of a different product and I did it in two weeks. It didn't, wow. take, it didn't take me a month. It took me two weeks. And I never went backwards after that. That changed. That was like the final thing that really shifted for me. Like, oh, earning money actually is easy when you stop thinking about it from the from the, the ethic of working hard so that you you don't put you don't make what you're doing difficult. It's not that we still don't work hard, but I'd like to say we work diligently, right? A lot of yeah. hard, a lot of hard work. What what ends up happening is a person looks at every project that they do, and instead of figuring out how to, how to do it easier and faster, they figure out how to do it hard. So that's what changed. And from there, I went over a million, and then it was multiple millions, and then the company was global. And it, you know, I really took that with me and everything else that I was doing. How do we actually make this easier and leverage what we have instead of making it hard and having it take forever? And then. I became really well known for helping my clients do that so that, you know, most of them would go over seven figures within 12 months. I hope you loved today's episode. And I just want to take a second to thank you for being an avid listener of the I Heart My Life show. Whether you've listened to one episode or all 100, I am so grateful for you. And if you could take one second and leave a review on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it. And also share this podcast with somebody who needs it. We all know there are people in our lives who could use some inspiration, some success tips, and overall possibility, a dose of that incredible possibility to show them what is possible for them in their life and business. Looking forward to talking to you soon and celebrating another 100 or 200 or 500 or 1,000 episodes with you over the years to come. Thank you for listening to the I Heart My Life show. For more inspiration, success tips, and ways to achieve your life and business goals, definitely follow me on Facebook and Instagram on I Heart My Life Now. See you next time.